Testament scripture reading tonight comes from Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, and 2 Kings 1, 2 through 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers, telling them, Go inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed into which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us. And he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed into which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Let us pray. Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the Spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Well, good evening. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Tonight, we are going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Luke, which was written for Theophilus, the God lover. We've seen a major driving theme in Luke's Gospel up to this point is the idea that Jesus is the Son of God and he has come to inaugurate Jubilee. To begin his ministry, Jesus read the words of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As you know, after reading this, Jesus proclaimed that he is the fulfillment of this great prophecy. 
Luke then records the ministry of Jesus. And time and time again, Jesus proves by his actions that those words that he spoke that day were indeed true. Today is no different. Today, we are going to see another example of how Jesus came to free God's people. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives and to set free those who were oppressed. But his mission isn't without resistance. Jesus came to fight a war that had been going on since the very beginning against God and his people. And neither the great oppressor nor his allies would go down without a fight. So if you're willing and able, I invite you to please stand to honor the reading of God's most holy account of this battle from Luke chapter 11. We will be picking up in verse 14 and we will go through verse 26. Hear God's word. Now Jesus was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of his word, and may he grant us all the grace to trust and obey him. And all the church said, amen. Please be seated. All right, so tonight we are going to be looking at three things from Luke 11. First, we are going to look at the history of the war with Beelzebul. And then second, we are going to acknowledge the multidimensional nature that is reality. Finally, once we've done that, we are going to circle back and we are going to see that Jesus alone is the one who can grant, who can grant true freedom and who can grant jubilee. So first, let's... Look at a little history of God's war with Beelzebub. We've discussed this before, but it's worth the reminder, especially when dealing with a difficult text like today. When we approach our Bibles, we are tempted to flatten out history. 
we read God's word and because we desire to trust and obey him, we immediately try to make connections to our lives. Now, sometimes that works. Sometimes texts are straightforward enough to make direct connections that don't really violate any rules of interpretation. For example, Paul appeals to the brothers of the Roman church and says, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That's pretty straightforward. The Roman Christians were to obey that command, and so are we. But then there's other times where the connection isn't so simple. The connection isn't so straightforward. Sometimes we have to think a little bit more critically about the text that we're reading. And that's the case today. Some would have you read Luke chapter 11 and Jesus's battle with the demons. And they would want you to make it prescriptive and they would want you to make it normative. If you're going to put that Another way, some would read Luke 11 and they would say that should be the same kinds of things that we expect to be happening in our day to day lives or in our church experience. Now, we appreciate the brothers and sisters who have the desire to apply the Christian faith to their lives. But we have to point out that this is an irresponsible way to read a text. To read a text this way doesn't do justice to the author of the text, nor does it do justice to the great author of redemptive history that is recording it. If you remember, Luke himself told his hearers that he was writing a historical account. He was writing a narrative. He was telling a story. And this Story is one that recounts one of the most unique moments in all of history. It's the culmination of the great war, God versus Satan. This war began with man versus Satan in the Garden of Eden. And in our scripture readings, we heard two more of the battles. In Exodus 8, Yahweh was at war with the gods of Egypt to liberate his people from slavery. After Pharaoh's magicians were unable to replicate the miracle of the gnats and before God sent the plague of the flies, they told Pharaoh that the very finger of God was doing these things. God proved himself. He proved himself greater than the Lord of the flies. And yet after he delivered his people, what did they do? They warred among themselves. They were a kingdom divided. In 2 Kings 1, we read that one of the two kings named Ahaziah was injured in a fall. And so he tells his messengers to go to inquire of Beelzebul, the Lord of the flies. He tells them to go inquire of him rather than to listen to the messenger of the God of Israel. As punishment for this rebellion, God fires down judgment upon two captains of the kings and 100 of their soldiers. The third captain comes and he begs for mercy. And God spared him. But God didn't spare the wicked king who chose Beelzebul over God. So you see, there are old covenant battles between Yahweh and Beelzebub, which lead us into today's great battle. 
In the Old Testament, we only see Satan directly mentioned three times outside of the book of Job. But when we get to the New Testament, every single New Testament author mentions Satan. And 60 out of the 68 times the word demon is used, it is used in the Gospels. This flurry of demonic activity we see in the Gospels should stick out to God's people as a last-ditch desperation assault in response to the coming of Jesus into the world. This is not the normal experience for the Christian in their day-to-day life. This is a unique moment in all of history. Luke explains that demons had come in great numbers, sometimes thousands of them inhabiting one person. When these demons came, they were anything but gentle. They violently assaulted men and women and children. God's people were under assault and Jesus had to be the one to come and set them free. And yet here they were. The great crowds. On the one hand, they were amazed at the work that Jesus was doing. But on the other, they were acting more like Pharaoh than his magicians. More like Israel's wicked ruler than the repentant captain. More like children of their father, the devil, than sons of God. They accused Jesus of being an insurgent of Beelzebul, who has now grown in legend to be associated with Satan himself, the prince of all demons. The crowds demand a sign from heaven as if they hadn't just witnessed a cosmic victory. Jesus is able to discern when people are legitimately asking questions and when they're just trying to argue in their unbelief. In this case, Jesus acts like a presuppositionalist. He enters into their arguments and he shows them the irrationality of their thought. Satan is more clever than the Israelites, for even he knows that a kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Jesus points out the absurdity of their argument on a merely logical level, and then he points out their hypocrisy on a practical level. Jesus' disciples during this time are not the only ones casting out demons. Jewish exorcisms have been going on at least since the time of Solomon. Listen to Josephus, a Jewish historian living in the first century, as he explains how exorcism was being practiced by those other than Jesus. God enabled Solomon to learn that skill which expels demons, which is a science useful to men. He composed such incantations also by which depression is alleviated. And he left behind him the manner of using exorcisms. And this method of cure is of great force unto this day. I've seen a certain man of my own country releasing people that were possessed by demons in the presence of an entire army. And when he did, he said a little cup or basin full of water a little way off. And he commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn it and thereby to let the spectators know that he had left the man. And when this was done, the skill and wisdom of Solomon was displayed very clearly 
so that all men may know of Solomon's abilities, how he was beloved of God, and that the extraordinary virtues with which this king was endowed may not be unknown to any people under the sun. So around the time of Jesus, the Jews were accepting exorcisms as proof of God's blessing Solomon with extreme wisdom that had been passed down generation after generation. After each exorcism, the Jewish leaders would praise the wisdom of Solomon so that everyone who witnessed it would know that Solomon was beloved by God. And here enters Jesus. The one who is truly beloved of God, the better son of David, the one far wiser than even Solomon. And he puts these people in a quandary. If the power to cast out demons could only come from Beelzebub, then where did their exorcists get their power? If their exorcists weren't using Beelzebub, then they had to at least admit that Jesus wasn't either. But our text today isn't just about an argument over where the power to do exorcisms come from. Jesus warns the crowd that they had better be sure of their assessment. Because if Jesus was casting out demons by the finger of God, then God's kingdom was at hand. And everyone should know who's going to win this battle. The prince of demons may be strong, but he is no match for the stronger man. He is no match for the God man. The people had a choice. They could either respond like Pharaoh, they could harden their hearts and die, or they could respond like his magicians and acknowledge that the finger of God was at work. They could respond like Ahaziah and his first two captains. They could align themselves with Beelzebul and die, or they could respond like the third captain and beg and receive mercy. This is the war of all wars. So everyone had better be sure about whose side they're on. And before we go on to the final act and see Jesus as the only one who can truly inaugurate Jubilee, who can truly free God's people from slavery, we need to at the very least come to see reality as multidimensional. That's our second task before us to see reality as multidimensional. And so I want us to tackle a question that might be in your mind. I know it was in mine. What are we supposed to do with all this demon talk? Some of you were raised to trust God, and so you come to a text like this and you cheer for Jesus with all your hearts. That's not true for all of us. Some of us come to a text like this and we have a tendency to trust ourselves, to trust our intellect, our gut or our senses or some other faculty. And when we hear and see stories like this, we are tempted to waver in our faith. We like empirical data. We inconsistently profess that we must see it for ourselves, hear it with our own ears, or touch it with our own hands if we're going to be expected to believe something. Seeing is believing, right? Now, it wouldn't take long, I don't think, to prove how inconsistent we are 
in that claim, for we all trust all sorts of things that we can't empirically prove, but that's a matter that we will deal with another day. What I don't want to do is I don't want to cause those of you who are strong and firm in your faith to doubt. But what I do want to do is challenge those of us who are skeptical at all this talk of demons and exorcisms. I mean, I have never in my life seen an exorcism. And most people that I know who relay stories to me about an exorcism, they're not exactly the most reliable of folk. My thinking, and and I kind of lean towards the idea of we have more modern, more medical explanations that better account for what the ancients ignorantly attributed to demons. After all, the Gerasene demoniac could have had epilepsy. And people with schizophrenia or multiple personality disorder have been known to speak in unrecognizable voices. If you're like me and you're tempted with these thoughts, I want to point out a couple of things. One, the gospel writers and Jesus himself distinguish between diseases and demons. In Luke 9, Jesus is said to have given his 12 disciples the power and authority over all demons and to cure all diseases. The gospel writers do not always directly correlate demonic activity with sickness. You know the story, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. He causes paralytics to walk and he heals a woman with a flow of blood, none of which are blamed on the assaults of Satan's soldiers. And yet there are times when he is said to cast out demons when they're present. He delivers men, he delivers women, he delivers children, and the demons themselves are said to have spoken and acknowledged who he was, even if the people around them didn't. So that's one, the gospel writers themselves distinguish between demons and disease. And second, I want to point out the reason you and I have doubts is not necessarily because we are smarter or more sophisticated. After all, the crowds actually did see what Jesus did, and they were amazed, but they did not believe. Seeing isn't always believing. We are tempted to think that those ignorant people are just primitive, and they don't really understand what's going on. But do you see the arrogance that's behind that way of thinking? If we had grown up in another place of the world, we would think that those poor college-educated Westerners have no idea what's really going on. We would be accused of attributing what's obviously demonic to something that can be cured by a little pill or a vacation. So who's right? Is it the scientific Westerner? Or is it the street smart commoner? Well, if we're going to follow Paul's exhortation that we read earlier to the Roman church, we should not be conformed to this world, but we should be transformed by the renewal of our minds. When in doubt, like good children, we are to trust our Father's word. 
Jesus himself acknowledges the reality of Satan and demons, and so should we. But even if that's a bridge too far, even if you're just not sure right now where you stand with all the demon talk, one thing that most people in most cultures can agree on is that whatever the case, reality is multidimensional and our problems are multidimensional. So your fear of failure is not just a chemical reaction that your body randomly produces when faced with a challenge that makes you uncomfortable. You've been formed. You've been molded by your experiences. Perhaps you had an absentee father or one that was never pleased. Perhaps you're terrified of what other people will think of you. That deep-seated fear is not purely biological, but it's intertwined with who we are as people. If you struggle with anxiety or depression, it's not a purely physical struggle. There are relational and spiritual and emotional complexities that will send you into that spiral. If you overeat for comfort or undereat to feign some semblance of control, If you go to social media to escape or boost your self-image, if you can't stop thinking about marriage or how you're the smartest person in your company, if you're too good or too busy for church life, too embarrassed or too proud to let your pastors pastor you, if you try to boss your sister around or get your brother in trouble, If you belittle your wife or you nag your husband, none of these can simply be brushed away as demonic oppression or lies of the devil. But nor can they simply be attributed to our sympathetic nervous system or the reptilian portions of our brain. All of these are countless cases of examples of the multidimensional nature of our being that cannot be attributed to solely spiritual or solely physical causes. Our natures are complex, and if nothing else, Jesus acknowledges this. In the book of Jeremiah, God declares impending disaster on His people because they don't even blush over their sin. God says that Prophets are healing the spiritual wounds of His people lightly. They say things like, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jesus acknowledges that there are ways to perform exorcisms that leave people in a worse condition than they were before. There are ways to heal someone's symptoms in such a way to leave them more susceptible to the deadly impact of disease. Michael Wilcock, a commentator, explains what's going on. He says, Luke will later quote his friend Paul as claiming that Paul's mission is to rescue men from the power of Satan to God. He goes on, such is the condition of the unsaved, even if they are far less obviously in the grip of the evil power than was the demonic man. Furthermore, in no case will there be any lasting value in mere reform. Jesus' main point is to show how useless, indeed dangerous, is the explanation and the expulsion of an evil power by whatever means if no good power comes in to bar the door of its return. 
He continues, this is always true, whether it is by exorcism or by sheer determination that men try to rid themselves of the evil within them. There are ways to fight your sin. There are ways that can even appear to make you seem as if you have cleaned yourself up or to use Jesus's words to put your house in order that will leave you in more danger than when you wrestled with that sin. Those of us that have been to a counselor or heard the 12 steps in AA or the eight steps of celebrate recovery know that there are very good things that can help with struggles. Getting exercise is good for anxiety and depression. Having a goal weight is good for an anorexic and a diet is good for a glutton. Covenant eyes is good for accountability in regard to lust. And a budget is good to curb erroneous spending. But those are Jewish exorcisms. They're fine for making things look like they are clean in order, but they are ultimately setting you up for a more dangerous fall later. More law. More rules. More rights. More rituals do not cut to the heart of the issue. John Owen, one of my all-time favorites, says those who do not put sin to death do themselves and others great harm. They promote a form of godliness that has no power to eternal life. True mortification, putting sin to death, is by the Spirit. Any merely outward attempt to kill sin taking vows, imposing strict rules on our bodies, adhering to religious duties, will fail. If God has not promised to work through these means, they are powerless. If we put confidence in our efforts, self-discipline, and promises, we sidestep the power of the gospel. If you replace depression and anxiety with a jagged little pill, but you don't deal with the multidimensional nature of your struggles, you will not really be delivered. If you find a great diet plan and you reach your goal weight, but you replace one form of control with another, you will not be truly delivered. If you get covenant eyes, But you don't change your view of God's image bearers if you switch from obsessing over a person to a pet. If you just go through the motions of worship and you say the right things. If you switch your jealousy towards your brother or sister into parental people-pleasing. If you idolize your wife or let your husband indulge in his sin. You're in a potentially worse case than before because you have healed your sin lightly. You have seemingly put to death one sin when in reality you may have left yourself vulnerable to seven others. Jesus' point that if you in your own power or your own program, or your own pill, try to put your own house in order, you will be in a more dangerous condition than before because you'll be under the false impression that you could be delivered by something or someone other than Jesus. And so what do you do? Well, brings us to our third and final point. 
You come to Jesus alone for your true freedom. For your true jubilee. And you let His Spirit drive out your demons. You let His Spirit fill you. You let His Spirit fill your life with His fruit. The good news isn't that Jesus has proven Himself strong enough to cast out one demon or a thousand demons. He's trying to explain to the crowd that He's the only one stronger than the prince of demons. For those of you that find yourself struggling with that one pet sin over and over, only Jesus can deliver you. And for those of you who think you have your house in order, but you're empty and in danger of being invaded by the belief that you're strong enough on your own, the Spirit of Christ can fill your soul. After His baptism, the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and sent him out into the battlefield against the great giant. Jesus went head to head with Satan and he won the strongman competition. But he didn't just defeat Satan. He faced up against sin. He had a showdown with death itself and Jesus emerged victorious. So that same spirit, that same finger of God is here to fill all who trust that stronger man, the God man, Jesus Christ. If you've been freed by this Jesus, then you are free indeed. You're free. Free to cry out to God in the darkness because he is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. You're free to feast. You're free to fast, both without guilt or shame. You're free to view all people as image bearers of God, loving them and wanting what's best for them. In Christ, you're free to be single. Free to make mistakes at work and free to forgive others. You're free to worship in spirit and truth, even when it's hard and busy. In Christ, you're free to come to your pastors with help for your marriage or your kids or your addiction without being embarrassed. In Christ, you're free to love your brother and your sister. You're free to honor your father and mother. Christ frees you to do hard and holy things even when other people aren't. Jesus came to set captives free. He came to deliver you from bondage. His spirit drives out evil and fills the empty crevices in your heart. As we prepare to confess our faith and come to his table, prepare to be filled. Prepare to be nourished by that same Holy Spirit that Christ promises all who trust him. Let's prepare to rejoice. Let's pray. Oh God, we praise you. There has been a great battle since the beginning of time.
we are too weak, we are too sinful to think that we stand a chance against Satan, against sin, or against death. And so we rejoice that Christ came, that He came as the stronger man to fight our enemies on our behalf, to expel the soldiers of Satan from our lives, to expel sin from our hearts and our minds. We thank You that we can hide behind Him. We thank You that Your Spirit is sent to indwell us that no other spirit stands a chance against. We ask that You would fill us now with Your presence, that Your Spirit would come down and reign upon us, that we would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Christ. And that we would be empowered to fight sin. Put it to death. We must be killing sin or it will kill us. Give us this power for the glory of Jesus. For the good of your name. And for the good of your people. Amen.